0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Richard Crockett, an emeritus professor in the School of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. His book, Einstein and 20th Century Politics, a Solitary Moral Influence, published by Oxford University Press, is an intellectual biography of Einstein's political thought. It's one of the most compelling figures of the 20th century, Einstein first gained public attention for his scientific theories, placing him on the world stage. Developing a broad network of liberal internationalists, he had the opportunity to speak for and support some of the most critical issues of his day. Crockett follows him through his early days and his connections with men like Bertrand Russell, G.H. Wells, and Abel Schweitzer that shaped his political thought as a global public intellectual. From his intellectual influence and personal charm, he worked on behalf of pacifism, Zionism, world government, freedom, and against the arms race. Einstein's political ideas emerged from a deep moral conviction, yet his thought remains complex, non-dogmatic, and at times seemingly contradictory. Crockett has captured a deep moral sensibility and an agile political mind of a scientist who exercised a salutary moral influence. Here's my conversation with Richard Crockett. Now let me introduce you to the author, Richard Crockett. Richard, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very very pleased to be here.
0: Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You have written a a fascinating book about a fascinating mind. But before we get into the book, tell us a little bit yourself, your background, and how you came to write Einstein and 20th Century Politics.
1: Okay, my background is as an academic historian in the field of American foreign policy and international relations, and I was particularly interested in the Cold War. Um, I then happened to find myself spending several months a year in Jerusalem. My wife was working there, and I saw a sign one day um, while I was crossing the campus of the Hebrew University saying, Einstein Archive. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds interesting. Um, I'd been interested in the atomic bomb, and I thought I'd look at one or two documents that he was associated with. And I went in, I got looking at the archive, and it started with just looking at two or three documents, and it mushroomed into a large project. That's broadly how it started, as an element of chance. Um, also, I was retired, just retired, was looking for a project, and I was in the fortunate position of being able to choose a project Um, with no gun at my head for publication, and it was extremely pleasurable. And it took me five years.
0: Okay, let's talk about Einstein. How did Einstein, which most people know as a scientist, how how did he develop a political voice on so many issues?
1: Well, you could say that he was a political person with a small P that is not an official party sense from quite a young age. He was very, uh, you could say, anti-militarist from a childhood. Apparently he was standing with his mother once watching a parade of soldiers and his mother said, no, you might be like those one or two one one day. And he said, no, I'll never be like those sad looking people. So he had attitudes which were potentially political from a young age. Then when he was in his um, uh, teens, he, w- he found himself in Switzerland. The complicated reasons why he had left Germany, partly because he didn't want to join the army. But he found himself lodging with a... Uh, An individual, a professor who was very political, encouraged discussion of free discussion at table and and evening dinner and so on. And Einstein took advantage of this and remembered him for the rest of his life as a very formative influence. And then as he was a student, um, he uh, engaged in discussion groups with people. He was not active politically in a party sense, but he was extremely aware of what was going on, and he was particularly close um, to a man called Adler, um, who was the son of the um, of the Austrian Social Democratic Party leader, and that again brought him into contact with, if you like, real politicos and lots of discussion. So he he um, showed an interest from an early age, um, without. Getting involved in party issues or uh, towing a particular line. I, I,
0: you just do you describe him as a, a liberal internationalist? Yes. And, and in his, his circle, his intellectual circle, he had a very wide intellectual circle. These were global connections with yes. other liberal internationalism. Can you talk about who they were and what, were their, what was their aim?
1: Okay, liberal internationalism, I suppose, is a reaction to the kind of nationalism which produced the First World War. Um, and I, before I, I should preface this by saying that his first public political activity was standing out in opposition to the First World War. That was crucial. And he was very much in a minority among his colleagues at the University of Berlin and other institutions there. Um, but that got him on the road. He was naturally non-national and believed citizenship was a kind of business arrangement. He didn't have this afflatus about the idea of the nation. Liberal internationalism really, in the sense that he uh, was involved in it, was a product of the First World War and that idea, never again, you know, let's produce institutions that will prevent war from happening again and that produced the league of nations and a whole succession of other uh, institutions and in the course of being involved in that and in follow up campaigns against war and for peace he came into contact with among others albert schweitzer burton russell gandhi john dewey the american philosopher uh, roman rolland in fact the first one he engaged with roman rolland the french um, writer and intellectual whom who was also a fervent um, a, a opponent of the first world war, and also h g Wells and George Bernard Shaw, who you might think wow that's that 's a strange set of connections, but they were also both very political, very global, and very involved in all these issues of war and peace and um, trying to deal with the post first world war situation
0: now this intellectual circle that he was engaged in, their aim was to persuade or be actively involved in the political arena. What was their, how do they see themselves and how did he see himself in that?
1: That's a very good and a very tricky question because it's not the case that he simply thought, I will stand up and make a speech or sign a petition and policy will change. He aimed, I think, and they aimed to in engage in the debate and create a climate of opinion in which liberal internationalist opinions would uh, be pervasive or at least would have some influence on the public debate And but he did also have a further, if you like his most advanced position which never came to fruition but he had this idea of a kind of um, core of wise men and it was men I think he was thinking of um, who could provide what he called a salutary moral influence and halzamen moralischen Einfluss um, uh, on international affairs by, uh, in in the most advanced form that he he pursued this, um, that this would be a kind of almost like a jury which would be. Uh, Uh, You know, who would listen to arguments and come out with the best possible uh, answer and advise governments. That was ultimately the idea. It never came to fruition. But he in a letter to Freud, from which I just quoted, he did propose this. He said, let's get the best minds of our generation together and try and influence governments in the direction of sane policies. Um, nothing like that ever happened I suppose the think tank is the most cl- is the closest thing um, but he was notoriously uh, um, unwilling to get involved in too much bureaucracy so on the one hand he had this idea that you could have a a group of wise men advising governments, on the other hand he was rather too much of an individualist to get involved in that kind of thing
0: now, it's interesting about your uh, book that you show a man who has, has a, an amazing intellect uh, able to think in a do- non-dogmatic way about mm. everything and, and yeah. am- amounts of flexibility, intellectual flexibility. What, how did his personality – he had a very kind of quirky personality mm. at one time, yes. sometimes charming, sometimes a little brash – so can you talk about his personality, and his temperament, and how that kind of went with his intellectual bent?
1: Well, I suppose I would, I, I would say that his most salient quality was curiosity about people, about ideas, about theories, about the world. And it gave him uh, an immense... Uh, it it, it in, in engaged him in a whole array of different questions. Um, he was unable to stop thinking about questions, if you like. And I think if if I put my finger, I, I hope on something that other people haven't in relation to his politics, it's that so many more people wanted to claim him for their own: the Zionists, the pacifists, the uh, uh, the world government people. And, and he did support all these causes, but on his own terms, in his own way, uh, with certain limitations and qualifications. And I think that that is a crucial thing. He had an inst- what I would say is an instinctive understanding that if you take one good idea to its logical conclusion, you produce fanaticism. And he resisted that always. He, as you rightly say, he was very flexible in his thinking without being flabby. Um, he hated compromises. This is what I, I, I find myself getting tied up in his contradictions, if you like. That on the one hand, he's very flexible. The other one, he has a very clear moral stance on things, yet he was never fanatical. And I think that is what saved him from being, um, uh, from being a bore, among other things.
0: <laughs> well, one of the things we're going to do before we get into his political thought, I want to talk about... Why you have written about Einstein, it seems to me like he would be a figure that like there'd be reams and reams and reams of of books written about him and and papers and uh, debates and probably conferences. And and probably there's probably some sort of society out there. The Einstein Society, if there is one, there probably is one. So there's a lot probably has been paid attention to him already. So why why another book about Einstein?
1: Okay well I'm going to preface this by saying that I made the great in some people would say a great mistake my first book was a general history of the cold war and people said to me why write about that you know people have written loads about the cold war actually mine was the first post cold war history of the cold war but the reason one the first answer to your question is I am attracted to the big questions which have been answer, been addressed a lot in the past and you try to bring some new perspective to it that's the first answer to the question the second is very curiously although there are hundreds of books on einstein I mean, on his non-scientific side as well as the scientific side, there is no single volume that addressed his whole political activity as a whole, except a couple of edited volumes, which I mentioned early on in my book, but which are source books rather than analyses as such. And so it was the challenge of putting together a, a lot of stuff that hadn't been put together and looking at him as a whole, rather than as a man of different causes,
0: Okay, one of the things, that you, what you're saying basically in your book, that pacifists have used him for his pacifist positions. Yes. Uh, but you're looking at or internationalism or world government or all the different things, Zionism, but you're trying okay. to look at it as a whole. So let's yeah. talk about Einstein's political thought. One of the things that you mentioned is Einstein, the t- Einstein paradox. Yes. What is the Einstein paradox in his political thought?
1: Well, to me, the the paradox actually relates to the, the relationship between his scientific thought and his political thought. And I was very struck by the fact that in science, he looked, he, he was the endless questioner and he looked at, uh, I'm quoting here, he looked at every side of the question from upside, from the downside, from the side side, etc. Um In politics, um, he tended to think that there were no good ideas, just obvious ideas. Which and all the, the the issue was to put it into practice. That's what he said. Um, he seemed to me to to have uh, a way of thinking about politics was which was in some respect different from his way of thinking about science. So it seems to me you have uh, in in a sense two Einsteins. One is a totally integrated figure who is. I mean, is, 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 if you see him in his speeches or you listen to his speeches and you read his writings, he is wonderfully integrated. He's like a, a man without deep, dark patches in his brain that you think might uh, come up and bite him sometime. On the other hand, he seems like almost a split personality. Um, but with science, he does, one, he does science with one side and, and politics with the other. He was always asked. What difference does your theory of relativity make to the way we think about the world outside science? He said none at all. I find that very odd um, because most scientific theories do have applications and people naturally want to make them apply, as they did with Darwinism, with Newtonianism, with any number of biological and other theories. But he resisted that idea uh, very strongly i i don't pretend to be able to understand totally why that was the case
0: one thing that you talk about is that he was a very intuitive thinker
1: uh, yeah.
0: and he was very intuitive both this is what was similar was that in his yeah. scientific work he yeah. did have a he did follow his intuition to yes. try to get to the answer and, he did. and in politics he also had this kind of gut level May we call it a moral intuition? Yeah. About he knew what was right, and what was to be done.
1: Yes. The difference is that with the politics, the, he, as it were, stopped with the intuition. He, he, as I say, he didn't become fanatical, but he didn't apply the same kind of analytical rigor to politics as he applied to science. And what, I, I spent some time in the book talking about. His um, exchanges with Freud about the theme of war. They had this big public exchange of letters. They were invited by the League of Nations to do this. And it struck me that in this exchange, Freud was the scientist and Einstein was something else. He wasn't, didn't apply his scientific criteria to this issue. I think because he didn't really, he thought it so, war is bad. Why debate? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the uh, there are no other issues. Whereas Freud actually raised the question. He said, well, why do you think war is necessarily wrong? You know, it's been in the human race for thousands of years. Shouldn't we just analyze it as something that exists, not as a moral question? Right. Now, for, for Einstein, it was always a moral question.
0: So let's talk about his pacifism that you just brought it up. He, he was, um, uh, very flexible in his pacifism. He wasn't an absolutist. There were times when he kind of said, oh, well, maybe this is a, a, a controlled exception. Can you talk about his pacifism?
1: Well, yes, I, I think from 1914, when he signed a petition against the second, World, the First World War until 1931 or so, 1931-2, he, uh, he did describe himself as a militant pacifist. Um, he didn't use the word absolute, but he had a militant pacifist. And he was associated with all the most advanced pacifists in the, in the, um, internationally, not just nationally. But when Hitler came to power, he changed his tune and he engaged in a qualified form of pacifism. For example, in response to a letter from a French pacifist who was living in Belgium, who asked him, should I submit to join the army? You know, conscript, uh, conscript, uh, be conscripted into the army. I'm against war, and you are, of course. Advise me. And he assumed Einstein would say no. Of course, resist. But by this time, that is at the, uh, when on the threshold of Hitler coming to power, Einstein said, "No, any person now must be prepared to fight Hitler." And he said this very early, you know, actually, 1932, 1933. And therefore, his, quali- his pacifism became qualified, as was the case of many other people, by the fact that the greater danger uh, was Hitler. Hitler. Hitler was greater than the abstract danger of war, of you know, of or, or the principle of war itself. And so he lost a lot of friends, a lot of credibility among pacifists and so on then. But he never wavered in that. He still called himself a pacifist, and, and he believed that world government should be inst- instituted uh, to bring it about. But on the specific question, he said, you must be prepared to fight Hitler.
0: Part of his uh, anti-war, his pacifism, was also related to his real... Sort of almost hatred of nationalism and any kind, con- and nationalism was a source of of war, That's you know in German Germany that was a source of war was German nationalism, so it kind of kind of goes together. Uh,
1: Consider that he was born in 1879 in to in Germany, um, only eight years after the unification, the war of unification against France. Um, Germany was very a militaristic society, not just in the sense that it had great emphasis on on, uh, military prowess, but its educational system was rather militarized and disciplined, heavily disciplined. Um, And Einstein was just temperamentally not suited to that. He resisted it at school. And um, as I said, he resisted being uh, drawn into the army at the age of 16, emigrated to Switzerland. His family had gone to Italy uh, and Einstein ended up going to Switzerland for the rest of his education. But yes, you're right. He was instinctively anti-national in the sense that he didn't believe in... uh, He certainly wouldn't believe uh, that you should lay down your life for a nation uh, or or to... um, Uh, uh, for a nation which showed any sort of aggressive um, force against other nations Um, and that stayed with him forever. He actually became a Swiss citizen and then an American citizen and and also a German citizen but the one that he liked most was the Swiss because they were less militaristic and less nationalistic than any other nationality um, that he was a a member of.
0: Now Then there's this uh, sort of contradiction in that he was, he supported Zionism. But it was, I understand that it was a, it was sort of, you know, couched in a sort of a cultural Zionism versus a state-based Zionism. Can you talk about first his Jewish heritage, how he he related to his Jewish heritage, or did he, and why did he embrace some form of Zionism?
1: His Jewish heritage is interesting because it's the case that he was always aware of it but um, until really the First World War he didn't make much of it. It wasn't a great obstacle to his progression in his profession. Um, He went to a Catholic school when he was young. Uh, He was the only Jew in the class and uh, uh, there were jibes and uh, uh, there was an element of anti-Semitism in this but it never proved... A, a damaging break on his advancement or his career. Um, what really stimulated his sense of his Jewishness was the end of the First World War. Um, when the end in Germany, the end of the First World War was a disaster. You know, uh, they did, lost the war, and the story was that they'd been stabbed in the back, that they'd made, um, they'd surrendered before they needed to, and uh, for for various reasons, uh, the Jews were accused of being supporters of the stab in the back, of having stabbed Germany in the back. At the same time, there was a huge influx of Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe, especially from Russia, and into this melee Um, the Jewish question became massive um, in Germany and Europe generally. And it was at that point that his consciousness became political and he joined and supported Zionist um, ideas. That is of a homeland in the Middle East. But as you say... He was resistant to the idea right up to the point where the State of Israel was founded in 1948. He was resistant to the idea of a political a Jewish political state. He believed there should be a homeland but he, he not at the expense of Arab um, inhabitants of that area. When Jew, the Israel was formed, he reluctantly supported the State of Israel. In fact, he was offered the presidency of the State of Israel in 1952, amazingly, um, after the death of its um, uh, first president, Chaim um, Weizmann. And he rejected it for a number of reasons. And it said that um, David Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister at the time, was delighted um, because he knew that, Einstein would be a very difficult person to deal with. Uh, Einstein himself, I think intuitively he was very old by this time but also he intuitively knew that to toe a political line particularly in relation to Israel would have been a very difficult for him.
0: Now the thing about when I noticed in that that chapter where you talk about Zionism is that he uh, was often dragged into Zionist issues that he was re- reluctant to be involved in and he would try to extract himself from it but didn't want to extract himself. He was very. Yeah. He had a lot of conflicted feelings about Zionism and his relationship to it.
1: He certainly did, and I, and I think um, I have to say, as as someone as a, as a non-Jew uh, who has um, spent a lot of time in Israel because I married into Jewish family. Um, and that chapter is the longest chapter in the book. I found that the most interesting, the most challenging, and the most um, absorbing chapter in a way to write. Um, and you're absolutely right. He was. Um, he didn't believe in assimilation. He arrived at Zionism almost by default because he didn't believe in the idea of assimilation that German Jews could kind of disappear into the woodwork. That was there was a strong assimilationist. Um, feeling among German Jews in the 19th century, and right through into the 20th century. He said, look, he had a close friend, Fritz Haber, the, the, the uh, chemist, who said, look, I'm Jewish, but I'm a German first. Why make all this fuss about Zionism, um, draw attention to ourselves, make things difficult for ourselves? We're Germans first. And Einstein's answer always was, well, they won't let you be just Germans you're always Jews to them, we must embrace it and take it forward and um, promote the interests of Jews as Jews. We have no choice. That was his view. And, and in this great debate between assimilationists and, um, and and zion that's, I think, ultimately why he ended up in the arms of the Zionists, or, or he embraced Zionism.
0: Which makes me wonder, I'm going to ask you a question. You talked about these two sort of schools of thought about about being Jewish, and I'm wondering if he represented really uh, uh, more of the middle that a lot of Jewish people in the West um, probably felt like him. They they wanted to stay in their countries wherever they were. They didn't want to go to Palestine and be part of a Jewish state, but they were supporters of Zionism for other reasons besides their desire to go live in Palestine.
1: Yes, that's correct, and of course he resisted moving to Palestine, and was invited many times, or it was assumed that he should go and, and for example, um, take a, a prominent role in the in the Hebrew University, which was uh, founded partly under his aegis and with his fundraising efforts and so on in in 1923. Um, but uh, I think you're right; he he um, represented a position that a lot of Jews could identify with who were not violently pro-Zionist in the sense of wanting a, a state. Um, I, I call him, a, a, I think, um, a Zionist by association as compared with Weizmann, who I called a, a Zionist by identification. And I think that represents reasonably his, his position. Um, and he was a secular um, Individual. I mean, he had, we could perhaps talk about his ideas about religion, but he wasn't a practicing Jew. Um, and so he, he represented a, 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 a situation which many Jewish people found themselves, um, who were secular, um, uh, non-Zionist, uh, or, or at least non-politically Zionist Jews.
0: Yeah, but they, they tend to identify, I think you called him a, a cult, cultural Zionism.
1: Yes, uh, they call uh, um, that cultural Zionism, which is to say a recognition that Jewish culture is something different, something special, some, something uh, which, with which a large uh, a group of people identify with, um, but he didn't see that as necessarily entailing a political organization of the state, which he saw as producing uh, a kind of nationalism which was, might tend to be destructive. I should say one one last thing at the end about this. Well, that's the most to say, but um, uh, many people have wanted to claim him for... Uh, either Zionism or anti-Zionism, and they found it very difficult. Each side can draw on different quotations and find things that will, will, will suit them. But the most interesting moment, I think, comes right at the end of his life, where a lady journalist came to his house and um, they talked about things. And towards the end, he said, well, You know, we all thought Israel was going to be something special. It's turned out to be just another country, you know, a nationalist and so on. And this was published. And he was absolutely furious and said, you should not take a private conversation and publish it and so on. And my take on that is that that probably did represent his private view, but he didn't want to be seen publicly to be undermining the state of Israel. And that was his position. He was trying to balance a lot of things.
0: Okay now the the burden that he carried i think uh since he um uh, did his uh scientific theories was that he was associated with the bomb in the popular imagination and this was a this was i think probably uh just painful to him that he was somehow the man you know the genius behind the bomb so, yes <laughs> So can you talk a little bit about his, inv- his actual involvement with the development of the bomb, it, if there was any, and um, what did he do? To, what did he, first, at, let's ask you that question first. What was his association yes. with the bomb?
1: Okay, well, there are two ways, of, two avenues uh, down which you can take this argument. First of all is the theory itself. Um, e equals MC squared it simply expresses the amount of energy which is locked up in every atom all around us. And the unlocking of that energy is what ultimately led to the atomic bomb. But he produced E equals mc squared in a paper written in 1905. The atomic bomb uh, project, Ma- Manhattan Project, wasn't started until 1942. There's a huge distance to run between that very theoretical statement about the relationship between um, mass and energy, and the producing of a bomb. So, but in people's minds, somehow, E equals N T squared equals the atomic bomb. So that's one reason why the association is made. The second reason people make the association is that in 1939, he um, signed and partly drafted and signed a very important letter um, to Franklin Roosevelt It was actually at the behest of another scientist called Leo Szilard, a Hungarian, um, but who recognized that Einstein's help would be enormously um, favorable in convincing Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, of the dangers of nuclear fission, of the possibility of nuclear fission and the possibility that Germany might get nuclear fission and therefore use it in the war. And that was the burden of the letter. Nuclear fission had just been discovered, or, uh, and, and um, the theoretical possibility of a bomb based on nuclear fission—that is, the splitting of, of the atom—was there. And um, Zilard thought we could, uh, with Einstein's help, uh, we could then warn the American government that this was uh, taking place, among other things. Um, a lot of uranium was disappearing, or the Germans were taking over Czechoslovakia and had taken over Czechoslovakia and were mining a lot of uranium, which is one of the basic ingredients. Um, so that's the second reason. This this famous letter, the letter to Roosevelt in um, August, September 1939. And actually, that was really the only substantial element of contact that he had with the Manhattan Project. There were a couple of other follow-up letters, um, but he wasn't involved in the project. Um, And to his irritation and anger right through the post-war period, um, this kept coming up and he kept trying to resist it. Um, And uh, for for obvious reasons, because... um, uh, uh, it went against. Here you have Einstein, the great pacifist, who's the father of the H bomb. You know, it's um, it, it, it made this very embarrassing, difficult for him.
0: So, but he, so he did get involved then, in, uh, in trying to stop the spread of nuclear arms.
1: Yes, um, I think uh, his major um, institutional role after uh, the war um, was with. with um, uh, an organization called ECAS, or the Emergency um, Congress of American Scientists, um, which sought to advocate international control of nuclear, um, not just nuclear weapons, but nuclear energy. And uh, this was a program or a pro- proposal that um, came to the UN in 1946 and was debated through 1946, 47, 48, and finally came to nothing. Um, but uh, uh, Einstein was continuously involved in this. In fact, he headed that organization. Um, later, he opposed the um, production of the H-bomb, that is the hydrogen bomb, which is uh, produced by nuclear fusion rather than fission, and he later then also was a signatory of the so-called Einstein or Russell Einstein Manifesto on, in the year he died, um, which um, proposed a general halt to the whole nuclear arms race. That, in turn, led to the beginnings of the so-called pugwash conferences and a whole lot of um, institutions of um, anti-nuclear institutions in, in throughout the Cold War period. He had an enormous influence in this area, therefore, in being involved in these early... Um, efforts to control and then to abolish nuclear weapons.
0: Now, he came to, to a place where he believed that uh, you had to go beyond internationalism uh, in order to control war, nuclear arms, mm. uh, and he was an advocate of world government along with some of his uh, colleagues. Can you talk yeah. about uh, what was the idea of world government? And who was he involved with? Who, who, What other people was he in dialogue with about world government? And how do you think that was going to work out?
1: Yes, well, uh, world government came onto the agenda, I suppose, after the First World War, but with a vengeance after the Second World War, because, again, I mentioned this never-again mentality. The idea, how do you stop these ma- mega wars happening, is by instituting uh, – a government of the world which can, I suppose, um, control uh, the both the arms and the kind of conflicts which lead to war. Having said that, when you ask who, who, who was advocating world government. Well, for a short period of time, in 1945, 1946, Nearly everybody on the liberal side of things was advocating world government. It seemed the obvious thing. Even Dorothy Thompson, the journalist, was advocating, and she was a more of a, a – didn't generally talk about international affairs like this. Um, he was very influenced by or struck by the writings of a Hungarian emigre called Emery Reeves, um, who wrote a book um, uh, in, in 1945 um um, on, on uh, uh, world government and the necessity for world government. Um, but there were a whole lot of people, as I say, for a short period of time, it was the going thing. Very soon, of course, as the Cold War got going, people began to say, "This is this is a pipe dream. World government in the situation where the Soviet Union is our great enemy, not possible. Einstein, though, continued to believe it. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that world government is not so simple. You know, how do you institute it? What is it? Um, How much sovereignty do countries surrender? Um, Einstein actually had this idea that they would surrender only their war making power. Now, I discuss in the book some, uh, I I think uh, that this to me is a slightly artificial and pie in the sky idea because actually, as we're seeing with um, Mr. Trump, um, national security issues are the primary function of nations. So if you surrender that, you're surrendering everything. But the reason I mention this is that people have assumed that world government is one thing and that Einstein was an out-and-out world governmenter but actually if you look at him alongside Emery Reeves and I think I'm the first to point this out he had a very qualified notion of world government because he didn't want to outlaw the kind of positive, if you like, positive nationalism which issued in independence for colonial powers, for example Emery Reeves apparently would be happy for the British Empire to continue um, and was very critical of ideas of Indian independence and so on, which came in 1947 and then subsequently all the African countries in the uh, the 50s. Einstein wanted to leave room for um, a, a kind of nationalism and a sovereignty that was a positive one. It's not clear how this works out institutionally or in practice, but he wanted to keep that option open. So he wasn't an, a, 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 an absolutist in this or in any other field.
0: Because he wanted to maintain the self, self-determination of peoples, uh, of people groups like the Indian people, yes. Uh, yes. but to give up their, their war powers. The problem with that, of course, is just uh, about everything is attached to war, economics, <laughs> Yeah. Yes. You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can really get into that, but um, so let's talk about how he saw he saw individual freedom mm-hmm. of the individual within the context of world government, and what what was his notion of individual freedom within the nation state within world government? What does it look like? What is the what what is freedom?
1: Him. Well, I'm going to surprise you again by saying that there's a deep contradiction in his ideas about freedom. I suppose say surprise in it with a somewhat ironic tone. Um, he believed um, that uh, individuals needed freedom in their lives, and he talked about external freedom and internal freedom. External freedom is enough goods and chattels to stay alive and be comfortable. Internal freedom is about the soul, is about freedom of ideas, freedom of speech, freedom of this and that, and and all the other things we're familiar with. But he also had an idea of a fairly rigidly deterministic idea, which came from his idea of physics, his his notion of science, that actually um, everything was determined. He had an ultimately deterministic view of of the world Um, and it was for this reason for example that he totally rejected or rejected a large part of the theory of quantum mechanics which was the theory if you like that succeeded his own theories Um, he rejected it because of its um, idea of indeterminacy of chance of statistical um, happenings rather than as he believed deterministic physical laws so we have, again, a somewhat a contradiction. He believes in freedom for the individual. He certainly cultivated and projected a sense of individual freedom as almost nobody else did. Meanwhile, within this framework of uh, a deterministic science uh, or a, theory, a scientific theory of determinism.
0: What is uh, his relationship with uh, socialism?
1: Well, he very often called himself a socialist, and he wrote a couple of essays about socialism which one of which wasn't published in his lifetime but one of which was i think um and from an early age he'd been associated as i mentioned with um with uh, adler the son of the austrian SDP leader and social democratic leader um uh but he tended to, uh, il- 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 he, 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 on the one hand, seemed to embrace socialism. On the other hand, he didn't accept all its class implications, the idea of class conflict the, uh, or, or a Marxist concept of socialism, which uh, saw history as historically society divided into classes. And the class conflict was the fundamental feature. Um, he was a socialist in that he dis- dis- disliked inequality. He was a socialist in that he believed that the community um, should be uh, uh, w- was equally important as the individual, um, and he was a socialist in that he believed that um, uh, the, the, the basic economic resources should be uh, run by the state, but he fell sh- he fell short of pure socialism by retaining a very strong element of individualism. the way I describe it in the book is that in his essay, his famous essay on socialism, it's only towards the end of the essay he gets around to economics. Um, You know, most socialists see the economic factor as being prime. He didn't. He he didn't know much about economics, to be honest. Um, And he didn't see it as prime. Uh, And you can balance his commitment to socialism with equally strong commitments to individualism and the idea of, of, of the, the, the special individual who has certain, uh, special insights. It's Again, it's, it's quite a complicated um, story. Um, he was an anti... He was an egalitarian. Um, and certainly in his personal life, he was wonderfully... He could talk to anybody. Um, um, and if that's socialism, then he was a socialist.
0: Now, during the Cold War he was uh, considered un American during the Cold War for several things uh world government his uh mm. his uh support of stopping the arms race which the Cold War mm. thought it was you know so important to protect american interest um mm. he the entrenchment of nationalism there's a lot of reasons mm. so, so I'm sure he didn't like the United States as a state any more than he liked Russia mm. as a state mm-hmm. so how how did it let's talk about What were the political ramifications to him personally of being labeled sort of un-American during the Cold War?
1: Yes, I I would want to say that, to preface this by saying that he was regarded as dangerously subversive at the moment he arrived in the United States. And particularly the Daughters of the American Revolution and other organizations as early as 1933, 1934, uh, felt that they had a dangerous radical on their hands, because he came with a reputation of being a pacifist, of making um, statements uh, on, on social issues like, like um, uh, uh, about marriage and so on, which which were regarded as dangerous. Um, so he had a reputation to begin with. But you're right, the Cold War is when it really comes to matter, um, I should say also that during the 30s, he was, uh, he went to the White House, he was a great friend of Roosevelt's, he, he liked the Roosevelt's a lot and went to dinner with Roosevelt. Um, so, a, a, again, there's this kind of uh, odd contradiction in, in, in him. But in the Cold War, um, yes, he was regarded as being particularly, uh, um, and actually be, be, uh, in the wartime itself too, as being, subversive to the extent that not being allowed to work on the Manhattan Project. I mean, that was one reason why he didn't work for the Manhattan Project, because he was regarded as a security risk. Even people who didn't believe he was outright subversive thought he was unreliable, you know, that he might say something that was unscripted or difficult, you know. But... The key thing in the Cold War is that the FBI and particularly J. Edgar Hoover made a personal mission to try to get Einstein on um, for being um, pro-communist. It was said that his house in Berlin in the 1920s was the home for communist meetings and so on, which is is nonsense, Um, and a lot of other comparable things. Uh, There's a file about 1,800 pages thick. Uh, the FBI compiled um, trying to find some element of actionable subversion, you know, that they could get him on um, in, in practice um, they found uh, nothing uh, that they could, they could manage to, to, to bring out. Of course he had left wing views and, um, and he made some public statements, which he got a lot of hate mail from and so on. But um, his position and his credibility internationally and nationally was such that it was very hard to um, to get the kind of evidence which would make, which would stick. Um, and I think this is one area which is rather important, that his scientific genius made him almost invulnerable. Um, He had a great friendship with Paul Robeson, who was uh, really hounded by the FBI, had his passport withdrawn and so on. Um, Of course, Paul Robeson, a black activist, as well as a wonderful singer. Um, and, uh, And yet Einstein was able, as it were, to ride out these subversive contacts. I think... Uh, in, in part because of his celebrity and his, and his status, and um, that 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 stayed with him throughout his time in America, which was about twenty years in America, twenty three years.
0: One of the last things I want to bring up is uh, his observations on the on American society and whether and how he viewed the racial issues. Now that you put up, you know, brought up Paul Robinson, and and how did that in any way? Uh, relate to his views on uh, cultural Zionism? Did he see any correlation there between an ethnic identity as a Jew and a black identity?
1: Undoubtedly, yes. I think um, it gave him an insight into racial discrimination um, and and also a... a, 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 a that and being an outsider, I think, and somebody of plain, of, of fairly blunt views. But yes, it it, may, it sensitized him, I think, to the, the racial issue. And it's interesting that in, in one of his most uh, prominent essays on this, which was quite early in the mid-30s, he talked about um, the racial issue as being the issue in America. This is the middle of the Depression. You know, most people are thinking, hey, uh, you know, the Depression is the thing. But he thought... Then, As I said in those days, the Negro question was the big issue uh, for America. And that was unusual and also regarded as being subversive. Um, he developed, it wasn't just high theory, he developed personal friendships. When Marian Anderson, the opera singer, came to Princeton to sing, she couldn't find a hotel, he put her up. And every time she came, he came, she came to Princeton after that, she was born in Princeton. But, oh no, it's Paul Robson Was born in Princeton. He put he put her up in his own house. Um, he talked to local people in 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 Princeton, New Jersey, um, local uh, African Americans in the street, and was and is still remembered by some by young children who were or rather who were children then and now grown up. Um, he had a very natural way of talking to people, and I'm sure it's partly because of his. Partly temperament, partly because it's identification with an, a, a minority, um, uh, which was used to being ethnically singled, singled out and discriminated against.
0: Okay, I have just, I have a final question for you, which hmm. is, um, what is Einstein's legacy, and what is his long term influence? Do you believe?
1: Well, besides I, I, besides
0: I, science, the obvious, which is science. It,
1: The obvious thing is science, I suppose my view is that it is on an ethical take on international politics. That is an ethical take which is not simply a laying down of a moral law and saying you must abide by this, but a a, a willingness to engage at every point with the ethical questions. And this is why I say that um, the last line of my book is that He's um, testimony to the fact that uh, politics, there's much more involved in politics than politics. And he represents that something else. And, of course, there is, there is a danger here. You know, it's very easy to make um, moral judgments about things that happen in politics. Politics is a complex issue. Um, not all issues are black and white. Very few issues are black and white, I should say. I think what... To me, what is unique about him is his ability to take a moral stance, which wasn't a preachy stance, um, which wasn't a sort of somebody standing on the sidelines, sniping away. Um, It was somebody who engaged, who gave himself to these issues in a way that is quite rare. Um, And I think if you read his writings, listen to him speak. You'll get a sense of somebody who is, a real, who is engaged actively. Um, and Actually, I'm seeing it even more clearly now as I think about it than I did when I wrote the book. Um, and that's what comes over to me is, is, is a, an individual who, who gave himself to these issues, not just his mind.
0: Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.